podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two Footed Podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 22nd of November. I hope you're all well. I would give you a weather update, but it's actually pitch black out now because I'm a little later than normal recording. Um, Today, we've got team of the season so far. We've got a bit of nostalgia and we've got some gossip and that's going to be the show. So team of the season so far. So I've put a lot of thought into this because I've seen a lot of these done and they're Almost all dreadful. I saw one that was done by an Arsenal fan recently, a well-known Arsenal fan who might or might not run a YouTube channel, and it was dreadful. He had James Madison playing left wing back. Um, he had Bukayo Saka over Mohamed Salah, and he had Gabriel Martinelli, who has not been particularly good this season, in his team. So we're going to do this properly. In goal... 
Ederson's been pretty good. I think Vicario has been outstanding. I think Emmy Martinez has been good. Nick Pope has been good. But I do think the best goalkeeper so far has been Alison Becker. I think he has been consistently outstanding game after game. I don't think there's been a goal Liverpool have conceded this year. Joint best defensive record in the league, it must be said. That's been his fault. And I think he's kept them in games on multiple occasions. So Becker in goal. Right back is tough. Not because there's a lot of great candidates, but because there isn't a great candidate. Walker's been good, not great. White's been okay. Poro's been good, not great. Cash has been good, not great. Trippier's been good, not great. Semedo's been pretty good. The two best right-backs in the league are Trent and Rhys James. Rhys James has missed most of the season. Trent has not been anywhere close to his own level. I think I'm going to go Kyle Walker here. I'm not in love with the pick, but when I just look at a consistent marker of what can I get week after week, how have you been week after week? I don't think he's had a bad game yet, whereas I feel like all the others have had at least one poor performance. He hasn't been standout, but he's been very steady, and that's basically what gets him in. Shifting over to left back, again, we don't really have a standout who's been performing at a really high level. Last season, we had a Stupin and an Aki who were both outstanding. This season, Aki's in and out of the team. A Stupinen has been injured. He hasn't been able to perform to his capabilities. Zinchenko's been average. Robertson's been below par. Luca Dina has been pretty good to his credit. Dan Byrne has been pretty good. Rico, Rico Henry was looking really good before his injury. Unfortunately, now he's going to miss the rest of the season. I think Tyreek Mitchell's been pretty good this year. But for me, the left back has to be Destiny Adoji. Now, I could cheat and put a centre back here because I do think there's three centre backs who warrant a place. And one of them is left-footed and has played left-back in the past, but he has not played left-back this season. So for that reason, I've got to go with Destiny Adoji. He was poor against Chelsea because he lost the run of himself and he made some silly challenges. But aside from that, I do think he's been outstanding. I think he did really well against Saka. He did really well against Salah. He's been impressive going forward. I think he's been the best left-back in the league so far this season. At centre-back, there's three names. Now, Arsenal fans are trying to force Saliba into this team. He just hasn't been one of the best three centre-backs in the league this season. He's not the best centre-back in the league. He's not top 10. He's not the best centre-back in the world. He just isn't. He just isn't. He's overrated. He's good. He's promising. People call him world-class, and it just makes me laugh. But I think it's because they're the same type of people who called Rio Ferdinand world-class and called Jerome Boateng world-class. They take what he does on the ball and the team's success 
and they think that makes him world-class, and they ignore the defensive flaws in his game, which you can see very clearly if you watch France's game from last night. He doesn't make my top three. It's Van Dijk, and it's the two Spurs centre-backs, Romero and Van de Ven. They've both been outstanding. And it's notable that in their absence, Spurs have conceded five goals in a game and a half. But Van Dijk has to be in. He is back playing at the same level he was at 21-22-19-20. He's in between those those seasons. That's the best centre-back in the world. It's the best in the league by a considerable margin. That's where he is. Even with the red card and the two-game suspension, he has been the best centre-back in the league this season. So it comes down to the other two. And because Van Dijk plays left side, he's the left-sided one, which means Romero gets the other spot. Romero has been the best right-sided centre-back in the league this year. There isn't really an argument to be made for anybody else. uh, Fabian Schaar has been very good, but not on Romero's level. Diaz, by his own standards, I've been disappointed. I've been very disappointed with Lewis Dunk. I think he's been flat-out poor. I think Kurt Zuma's had a bit of a mixed start to the season. I think you could make a decent case for Anderson at Palace, but I would still say Romero is a level above. I would say on the left side, after, just to give him a mention, because he's been excellent, after Van Dijk and Van de Ven, Mark Wehi has been outstanding. He had one poor game, but other than that, he's been outstanding. So those, he would be my number four centre-back. Fabian Schau would be my number five centre-back in the league this season. Saliba would be six, Anderson seven. But they're not getting anywhere close to the team. So we're going with Walker, um, Romero, Van Dijk and Adoiji. And yes, people will say, Oh, but Spurs have conceded 15 goals this season. <clears throat> That's only the fifth best defence in the league. Yeah. Five of those goals came after the two centre-backs went out of the team. Two of them came when the left-back had to be changed as well. So, And the left-back was off the pitch, actually, wasn't he, for, for all five of the goals, because he'd been sent off too. So when those three have been on the pitch with Poro and Vicario, that's been a great defence. Into midfield, we're going to go 4-2-3-1. The obvious picks here are, are Rodri and Rice, and they've both been very good. But I don't think they've been the two best midfielders in the league this season. I don't think either of them has been, has, has been as good as the two guys I'm going to pick. And I said yesterday, I spoiled one of them yesterday, Douglas Louise is in. Douglas Louise is in for me. I think he's been brilliant, quietly brilliant for Spurs. And he's getting through a ton of defensive work. He is vital in their build-up play. And he's producing at a high level in the final third as well. This season in the league, five goals and an assist. Now, I know he does take penalties, but five goals from centre midfield through 12 games is an outrageous return. He, for me, gets in. This is the best version of Douglas Luiz we've ever seen by a country mile. 
Kamara has enabled him to play that bit further forward and be that bit more adventurous. And Villa are getting enormous return on investment with him. Next to him, I'm going to go East Basuma. I just think he's been brilliant for Spurs. I think he's gone to the to the Etihad, no, to the the Emirates rather, and he dominated the midfield that day. He was the best midfielder in the park that day, and I think he's been the best midfielder in pretty much every game he's played in. I think he's been genuinely tremendous, and it's great to see because we saw him at Brighton and he was outstanding. And he went to Spurs, and last season it didn't work because injuries and didn't seem to get on all that well with Antonio Conte. But with Ange, partnering Papi Matarasar, we're seeing the very best version of him. And they've been incredibly good together. Like, Spurs are a very attack-minded team. They play very adventurously. Both fullbacks commit forward. And it would be one thing if Basuma and Matarasar were sitting in front of the centre-backs as a pair but they're not doing that. They're committing one of them forward. They're only really defending with three. And at times, Romero will go and get involved in the build-up play. So there have been times this season where you, you look at Spurs in possession and Romero's 25 yards from goal. The fullbacks are playing wide as wingers. The wingers have tucked in field and are playing as inside forwards. Madison is playing just off of Sun. Matar Sar or Basuma is on the edge of the box. And then you've got the other midfielder and Van de Ven protecting behind. It's very risky, but it's so much fun. And Van de Ven's pace allows them to do it. But Basuma's ability to read situations, to snuff out danger, to always time his tackles really well has been vital for them. So I'm going to go with Basuma and Douglas Louise as my centre midfield pairing. And Funnily enough, I think that as an actual pairing would be tremendous on the pitch as well. Uh, in the number 10 position, it has to be James Madison. I gave consideration to Zabozlai. I gave consideration to Alvarez. I even gave consideration to Bruno Fernandes because despite the fact that United have been terrible, he has been quietly quite good. And he doesn't do much quietly. So that's an achievement in itself. I also considered maybe playing around with the the setup to put Matthias Cunha in. Brian and Bomo was worth a look. I think Anthony Gordon's been quite good for Newcastle this year. But ultimately, it comes down to James Madison's been the best number 10 attacking midfielder in the league. And he just gets in season to date. Now, because he's going to miss the next chunk, when we do this again after 20 games or whatever, he won't be in because he'll have missed too much time. Right wing is Salah, and it's not debatable. It just isn't debatable. The only person that I would give a real look at is Pedro Neto. He's the only person. He has been better than Saka this season whether Arsenal fans want to admit it or not. Pedro Neto has been outstanding. And I did consider putting Pedro Neto left wing, 
but he has played the majority of his games on the right, so it didn't feel right to move him into a position he doesn't actually play because it winds me up when people do that. So I'm just going to go with him in that right-sided role. Left side is tough because you could play Hyungmin Son there, but he's played the majority of his games through the middle. So it's not really fair. He's not playing in that position. So why would you put him in that position? I think Matoma has been good, not as good as last season, but still good. Rashford has been terrible. Villa have had a rotating cast in that role. So have Tottenham. Luis Diaz hasn't really popped this season. Doku hasn't played enough games slash hasn't been consistent enough. Martinelli has not been particularly good. So ultimately I've gone with Lucas Piquetta, who's split, basically split his time between 10 and left wing. I think he has been immense in that West Ham team. I think they look a totally different team when he's not there. So I've gone with Piquetta on the left, even though it's not his best position. I think the minute split is about even this season for him between 10 and left. So we're going to go with him there. Which leaves me with a choice up front of Erling Haaland or Hyungmin Son. Now, if we go purely based on goals, it's obviously Erling Haaland. But performance matters when picking a team of the season. And it's not like Son hasn't been scoring goals. He's got eight to Haaland's 13. But Son is performing a lot better than Haaland. Week after week, Son is putting forward a better performance than Erling Haaland. So I'm going with Youngmin Son. And I should say, I'm wrong. Neto's not the only person worth consideration outside of Salah in the right-wing role. Jared Bowen absolutely is as well. Jared Bowen is having a tremendous year. Eight goals already in the league. He looks very much back to his best. That goal that he scored in the Europa Conference League final has clearly done him the world of good. And he's back to looking like the player he was a couple of years ago and potentially even more of a threat. And if Mikel Antonio is going to be out injured and he moves through the middle, I think that's potentially the best thing that could happen to West Ham at this point in time because Antonio has been awful this season and they look a much more dangerous team with Bowen through the middle because then they can go Kudus, Paqueta as a 10, and Ben Rama comes in on the the left wing. Um, that's my team. Allison, Walker, Romero, Van Dijk, Adoji, Basuma, Douglas Louise, Salah, Madison, Paqueta, and human son. I don't think, like, I know people will say that I'm biased against Arsenal. I just don't think any Arsenal player has stood out this year. Like, they're lauding Declan Rice for seven out of ten performances. Yet, they very casually ignore the fact he was dreadful against Chelsea. He was dreadful against Tottenham. 
oh, but he scored the goal. Yeah, he passed the ball into an empty net from 30 yards. I could do that. You could do that. There's nobody in his way. It's not hard. It's not a hard skill to do. Oh, he scored against United. Yeah, fair. He did. The goal should have been disallowed because Gabrielle fouled Johnny Evans. Rice did well. Rice has been good this season. He's been one of the five or six best midfielders in the league, which is a vast improvement on what he was last year. But go and watch those games again early in the season when he's playing as the six, and he does struggle. Defensively, he does struggle. There's a reason he's been moved back to the number eight position. It's because that's where he plays. He's not a defensive midfielder. He's never been a defensive midfielder. He's not intelligent enough as a footballer to play that role. Just watch him there for England and watch how oblivious he is to everything off his back shoulder. He's been good. He has not been great. He's not been imperious. He's not been sensational. He's been good because he's a good player. But that's what he is, is a good player. I'm happy with my team. I don't think any Arsenal player has stood out enough to warrant a spot. Go through them. The goalkeeper, they've both been poor. White's been okay. Saliba's been pretty good. Gabrielle's been pretty good. Zinchenko's been below par. Tomiyasu hasn't played well. Partey hasn't played enough. Jorginho's been fairly average. Rice has been good, but not great. I think Odegaard has been good, but not great. Saka has been good, at times very good, but not consistently very good. They've been rotating the number nine because of injuries. but So Jesus hasn't played enough, and Nketiah is not good enough to get that kind of juice. And Martinelli's been below par. For his level, below par this year. There isn't a standout Arsenal player this season. They're just a good team front to back. They've had an easy run. They've been fortunate at the times they've played teams. They played City without Rodri. They got Chelsea just as they were starting to find their feet. And Chelsea had played them and could have won the game. Probably should have won the game. Spurs should have won the game. Newcastle beat them. They drew it home with Fulham. Like, even their standout players, like their best players, if you were to list their players in order from top to bottom, who their best players are. I mean, Bakayo Saka is their best player, but he's not Mo Salah. Saliba's the one that they like to hype up in defence. He's not as good as Romero. He just isn't as good as Christian Romero. He's not as good a defender. He's also not as good on the ball. He just looks more elegant. Gabriel isn't as good as Van Dyke. Ben White is at best the fifth or sixth best right back in the league. I don't even remember where I had him, but I think it was about there. Like, who else are we are we trying to shoehorn in here? Rice, okay, fair enough. But again, Basuma, Douglas Luis, just because they're not playing for clubs that are quite as big as Arsenal. Like, look at the league table. Spurs are one point behind. They were missing 
half a team in their last game. Three of their defenders. Aston Villa are two points behind. Aston Villa are two points behind Arsenal. And a big reason for that is how good Douglas Louise has been. If you go player by player, Arsenal are considerably better than Aston, Aston Villa. I think Villa have a better manager. But Arsenal have better players. Now you take the Villa goalkeeper, which is funny considering he should be the Arsenal goalkeeper, but Arteta decided he didn't want him. But then you'd go Ben White, you'd go Saliba, you'd go Gabriel, you'd go Zinchenko. It would, would be the Arsenal back four. Kamara would be the six. The perception is that Rice is better than Douglas Weiss, but I'm not sure what that's based on. Certainly not based on performances. Not this season or last. The third midfielder would be Odegaard. The left winger would be Martinelli. The nine would be Ollie Watkins. The right winger is closer than people would like to admit because Musa Diaby is really good, but it is Bikayo Saka. So you've got Watkins, Kamara, Emi Martinez, and then you can have a debate, Rice or Douglas Luiz, but Douglas Luiz has been the better player for 16, 17 months now. So, you know, Arsenal have better players, yet Villa are only two points behind. And I would argue Villa have probably played a slightly harder schedule. Smidgen harder. That's open for debate. Anyway, so there's my team of the season. Feel free to disagree. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree with the fact that I picked Kyle Walker. But I'm just, there's no standout right back in the league this year. I know people will just automatically go, well, Haaland's the top scorer, so he has to be in. But for me, there has to be more to it than that. Like, if you don't score a goal, what do you offer your team? And Haaland doesn't offer anything. He's just very fortunate that the other 10 players all happen to be very, very good. Whereas Son can go weeks and months without scoring and still contribute to the team in really good ways. And for the record, if people want to talk about world-class players at Premier League clubs, the following are the world-class players at Premier League clubs. At Manchester City, there is... Ruben Diaz, Rodri, Bernardo, KDB, and Haaland. And that's it. That's Manchester City. Arsenal do not have a world-class player. They have some elite players. They do not have a single world-class player. Liverpool have Alisson. They have Van Dijk. They have Salah. And you can make an argument for Trent, but not in the last 14, 15 months. Prior to that, undeniably world-class. Last 14, 15 months, not so much with the world-class. But that's it. That's Liverpool's list. Three and a half. City have five. Liverpool have three and a half. Arsenal have nobody. Chelsea have maybe a case for Raheem Sterling. But... He wasn't world-class last season or the season before. So for me, I would knock him a level below. He's still an elite footballer, but I wouldn't have him at world-class. Nkunku has the potential. 
Enzo has the potential, Caicedo has the potential, but none of them are there yet. Spurs have Youngman's son. It is undeniable that he is a world-class player, despite a bad run last season. And United have Bruno Fernandes. And that's it. And that's the list. For the entire Premier League, that's the list. Ten and a half. Ten and a half. Gamerish isn't there yet. So there's nobody from Newcastle. There's nobody from Villa. There's nobody from Brighton. There's five at City. Three at Liverpool. And a half. One at Spurs. And one at United. I don't want to hear anyone else called world class. Because that term gets thrown around far too easily. What on earth would we base William Saliba being world class on? Certainly not a body of work. What would we base Declan Rice being world class on? Definitely not a body of work. But Kyle Saka will get there. I don't know about anybody else at that club. I, as I said earlier, I think Saliba will get there in the eyes of those who don't really understand what they're watching. Rice will get there because he's English and he will always have that bias behind him. But Rice is just a better version of Jordan Henderson. Same flaws, same strengths, same flaws, but he's a better version. If he ever loses his, his athleticism, he's going to be in serious trouble. Um, right, we'll take a break. When we come back, a little trip down memory lane. Not a big one, just a small one. Speak to you then. Right, welcome back. So today's nostalgia topic is my favourite Argentine players of the 90s and 2000s. And the reason for this is I grew up in the Maradona era when he was the best player in the world. He was the most fascinating sports person around, him and Michael Jordan. That was it. And I attained this fascination with the Argentinian national team. I had an Argentinian kit as a young person. And I just, I always loved watching Argentina play. And I've always been fascinated by the country, the culture, the people. And obviously there's there's strong Irish connections because a lot of Irish went there um, back during the famine and afterwards. So I've always had this affinity for them and they've always just produced wonderful players. So I'm going to go through a list. I think I've got about 20. And I'm, some of them I've talked before about at length. So we'll just kind of skip over them. It's more just to mention them and a few we'll dig into. So we'll start off with Gabriel Batistuta. Obviously talked about him before. One of the great number nines of all time. One of the most iconic players of the last 40 years. The long flowing hair, the powerful nature, the name, Batty Goal. Everybody knew who he was and what he was about. The goals he scored were phenomenal. He had a phenomenal career playing for Newell's Old Boys, River Plate, Boca Juniors, and then spent nine years at Fiorentina, then played for Roma, Inter, and Al Arabi. Retired in 2004 at the age of 35. 78 caps for Argentina, 56 goals. Just one of the great number nines. 
rarely gets brought up in conversations about the all-time great number nines, which is a shame. I think the fact that he played for Fiorentina for the largest chunk of his career is held against him because he doesn't have the medals that certain other players have. But it's worth remembering, he won two league titles in Argentina, did only win one cup and a super cup with Fiorentina, but won Serie B when he stayed with them after they got relegated. One Serie A, obviously, with Roma. Won two Copa Americas with Argentina, as well as a Confederations Cup. Gabriel Battistuta was just a goal machine. And when you look at the totals every season, you know, he's 19, 19, 28, 27, 18, 24, 26, 29, 21. That's an incredible run in Syria at that time. One season in Syria B, the second of those seasons is in Syria B. But he had that first season to settle in, scores 14 goals. And from there, he goes n- minimum 19 every season. And that's in Serie A against the best defenders in the world in a league that was still at that point defensively focused. Tactically, they weren't as expressive as we were seeing in England and in Spain. There was a lot more of a conservative edge to the Italian football. And it's always funny because Italian football has always completely contradicted Italian culture, which is quite expressive and flamboyant and pushes the boundaries. Italian football is quite dour in in a lot of ways. Like traditional Italian football is quite dour. And even when, say, Saki, for example, came in to Milan, And he started to change how Italian football was played with that high-pressing style. It was still done with that really compact, strong defensive base. They weren't committing seven and eight players in attack. They were committing five, sometimes six. You're still defending with a block of four, regardless. You were committing no more than six in attack. And that was seen as revolutionary. Now we watch teams that defend, like I said with Spurs earlier, with two. We watch Liverpool defend with two. And they commit everybody else into attacking positions. And Badastuda was putting up great numbers back then in that league. Phenomenal. Next up, the man who's currently my favourite manager in the world and has been for many years is Diego Simeone. El Cholo uh, came through at Vela Sarsfield. Moved to Europe with Pisa, then went to Sevilla for two years, found his way to Atletico Madrid, spent three years there, and then he moved to Serie A, was great for Inter Milan, joined Lazio, he's part of my favourite midfield of all time, spent four years there, went back to Atleti for two more years, and then finished off with one season in Argentina with Racing Club, where he would then take over as manager from there, he's gone to Estudiantes or a place, San Lorenzo, Catania, back to Racing Club and then Atletico Madrid for 12 years. And it, it doesn't get enough attention, the fact that he's been at that club for 12 years because that club had been a dumpster fire before he took over. Managers came and went like sweets. Like you would just throw them out for kids at Christmas. It was just or at Halloween or it was just incredible. If In the 12 years prior to him taking over, which would bring us back to 1999, 
Claudio Ranieri, Radomir Antic, Zambrano, Alonso, Cantarero, Aragones, Manzano, Ferrando, Bianchi, Mercia, Aguirre, Rosinho, Dania, Sanchez Flores, and Manzano again. It's 15 managers in the 12 years. Now, admittedly, uh, one or two of them were only caretakers, like Contrera, for example, was a caretaker. Antich was a caretaker, but they're still there for a couple of months to see out seasons. But 15 managers in 12 years, and then he takes over, and he's just been a consistent factor for them. Even in the 12 years prior to 99, you're looking at an incredible litany of managers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. We're only up to nineteen ninety-three. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine managers in the twelve years prior to Claudio Ranieri. Forty-four managers in twenty-four years, and he's been there twelve years by himself. That club was was a mess for years and years, and he's managed to stabilize it. But I loved him as a player. Just a nasty, do everything kind of midfielder. Wasn't incredibly technically gifted, but could do everything well. Good passer, great ball winner. Read the game well, ran endlessly, filled space. Scored his fair share of goals as well. It's often forgotten that Diego Simeone was a decent goal scorer. Scored 12 in a season for Sevilla. Scored 12 in a season for Atletico Madrid. Got seven in one, two, three, four successive seasons. His last season at Atleti, both seasons at Inter and his first season at Lazio. Also got seven in his last season at Lazio. At Atleti, seven was his worst season. Eight, 12, seven. From 93-94, when he scored 12 goals, up until 99-2000, when he got seven, he never scored less than seven. Like that's For a guy who wasn't an attacking midfielder and who was a general dog's body in midfield, there to disrupt and gnarl and snap at people, that's a, a hell of a return. Uh, moving on, Ariel Ortega, one of my favourite little playmakers, Argentina has obviously produced many's the diminutive playmaker and El Burrito, the little donkey, was absolutely one of them. A little genius, but a genius with a dreadful temper whose temper often boiled over and meant that he didn't have the career he should have had for his talent. Played for River Plate, a year at Valencia, a year at Sampdoria, a year at Parma, two years with River Plate, a year with Fenerbahce, a, uh, two years with Newell's Old Boys. And then he settled in a little bit at River Plate. But even in the six years he spent there, he still had three loans. He fell out with everybody, but his talent meant that managers kept going back to him, even when they didn't want to. His talent demanded that he be picked to play. 88 caps for Argentina, 17 goals. Wonderful passer, great vision. Didn't have the explosive burst of pace of some other number 10s that that they've had over the years. But he read the game so well and he could pick passes into every little pocket of space. 
just a great player to watch, a very fun player to watch. Great centre, low centre of gravity, could beat players really easily. Beat players in such tight spaces, like he'd dribble into a corner where you thought he's got two or three on him, he's not getting out of this. One little drop of his shoulder, run his studs over the ball, flick it the other way and he was gone. And they're all standing there looking at each other and he's away up the pitch. Also a great set piece taker as well. Uh, Matthias Almeida, defensive midfielder. River Plate, Sevilla, Lazio, part of that Lazio squad that won the title. Parma, Inter Milan, Brescia, Quelmes, Lynn, Phoenix in Argentina. And then finished off with River Plate. 40 caps, just the one goal. He's become a manager. Uh, he's managed River Plate, Banfield, Guadalajara, San Jose Earthquakes and is now in charge of AEK Athens, where last season he led them to the double. Um, he also won a national, uh, won the title, um, the second division River Plate, after they'd been relegated, he brought them back up. Then he went and he brought Banfield up. Then he went to Guadalajara and he won Liga MX and two cups, as well as winning the CONCACAF Champions League. So he's won who's become a very good manager that you rarely hear mentioned when people talk about players that have become managers. The one place he didn't have much success was San Jose Earthquakes. But everywhere else he's been, he's had success. He's done what they hired him to do. And that's what he did as a player. He wasn't flashy. He was just a defensive midfielder. He was just a ball winner. He was David Batty with long hair. He tackled people, won the ball back and gave it to his teammates. And there's something I love about that. The selfless nature of the pure ball winning defensive midfielder who rarely, well, back in those days, would rarely cross the halfway line. He'd just sit in front of his defense and he'd tackle anything that moved. And I always liked it. And he was vital to Lazio in that title winning season. Even though he wasn't a starter, he could play with Simeone. He could play with Varane. He could play with the two of them if uh, Ericsson wanted to go five in midfield. He'd fill in at centre-back. He'd fill in at right-back. Really, really good player. Very, very underrated historically. R- Roberto Ayala, one of my favourite centre-backs of all time. Five eight, five nine, but incredible spring. Could out-jump 6'3", six, 6'4", six, strikers. Completely fearless. Played for uh, Ferro Carrell. River Plate, Napoli, Milan, Valencia is where he's most famous for, Real Saragossa, and Racing Club finished off back there. 116 caps for Argentina, including uh, 63 as captain, which is a record. Seven goals for his country, obviously not a big goal scorer as a centre-back, but a proper, proper old-fashioned defender but he was so much smaller than the guys he was playing against and yet he would bully those big strong strikers. Decent on the ball, not spectacular but decent, but rapid. Amazing spring, like genuinely amazing spring and tough as nails and a constant talker. Never ever stops yapping. Never stops yapping. Great, great defender. Well worth a mention. Juan Sebastian Verón, again, he's one I've talked about at length. I think he's criminally underrated historically. 
I think people put far too much on to the failures he had in the Premier League. I would argue he didn't necessarily fail at Manchester United. He was signed because Ferguson had the idea of playing Skulls as a number 10 and Keane and Varane together. And unfortunately, Keane and Varane cancelled each, each other out in a lot of ways. Had it been Varane and a Vieira type, a box-to-box ball winner type, that would have worked. But post-knee injury, Keane didn't go box-to-box as much. He was also pushing 30, or he was 30 when Varane arrived. But with Skulls as the 10 and Varane deepest, that would work because you're going to get the best of both of them. Keane and Varane didn't work all that well. There were some games they were brilliant together. Some games where the two of them just sat in and controlled things. They were phenomenal. But when United needed a little bit more from them, neither of them were going to commit to get forward, to make those runs into the box, because that wasn't their game at that point. It was never Varane's. At that point, it wasn't Keane's. And they were getting each other's way as well. As United tried to build out, both of them would drop into the same positions looking for the ball. And it made one of them redundant. Had the other one been more, had it been a young Keane, if you could have got young Roy Keane with Varon, that would have been spectacular. But you have to look at the whole career. Brilliant with Boca, brilliant with Sampdoria, brilliant with Parma, incredible for Lazio. He was good for United. The idea that he was terrible for United just isn't true. He was not good for Chelsea. But he went to Inter, he was good. He went back to Estudiantes and he was incredible. Absolutely phenomenal back at Estudiantes. Uh, then he moved on to Branson, who were an amateur club, thinking that he was retiring. Turned out he was just far too good for that level. Went back and played another season with Estudiantes, where he is now club president. He was... If I was Jurgen Klopp, and Trent is talking to me about moving into midfield, he's the blueprint I'm telling Trent to go and watch. He's the guy I want Trent to replicate from that midfield role. People talk about Pirlo and Alonso, great players, great players. Give me Juan Sebastian Veron over either of them. Moving on, Hernan Crespo, another one I've talked about at length, an all-round number nine, brilliant back to goal, an outrageous finisher, one of the best volleyers of the ball that I've ever seen, scored goals that didn't seem possible, great finisher in tight spaces, great first-time finisher could score left foot, right foot, and with his head. Again, didn't do nearly as badly at Chelsea as people would like to have you believe. His first season there, he scores 10 goals in 19 games in the league. That's not bad at all for first season in the Premier League. And it's worth remembering that he joined Chelsea having missed half the previous season with injury and wasn't up to speed and also missed half the games that season with injury. Then he was loaned out. Then he came back. His second season, he scores 10 and 30. It's not bad. It's just not good for him. But you look at him with River, excellent. With with Parma, phenomenal. His his third and fourth years there are phenomenal. His first year at Lazio is disgustingly good. The second year at Lazio, he starts to have injury problems. And those injury problems would plague him for the remainder of his career. But even after Chelsea, the loan with Milan... He gets to the Champions League final, scores twice, they end up losing. He goes to Inter. He does really well in his first season, 20 goals in 40 games. Not so good in the second season. 
that's on a loan, but he ends up staying anyway. Him at Genoa wasn't great, but it was it was great to have him at Genoa because he's Hernan Crespo. And he finished off with Parma, where, again, injuries just kind of spoiled things for him. Um, I loved Hernan Crespo. I loved watching him play. I loved his movement, his ability to fake a run, send a defender. for the, Like, for example, Lazio breaking down the left wing with Nedved. Crespo starts to make a front post run. Defender shifts with him. He hesitates. He goes right to go sort of towards the middle. Then he bursts back front post. And the defender completely commits and goes with him. Except Crespo hasn't committed to it. And now he drops back centrally. He's got two yards of space. Nedved, he knows, is cutting in on his right foot, not crossing with his left. And now he crosses in. Lots of space. You go watch that Lazio season, you'll see that goal three times. You'll see the move eight or nine times. He would send defenders for milk without having the ball anywhere near him. Phenomenal move. Uh, moving on. Javier Zanetti, another one I've talked about endlessly. He's For me, he's the greatest right back to ever live. I, I just think he was a phenomenal footballer. Could play anywhere across the back line, anywhere across the midfield. He's the first fullback I ever saw be man-marked. Talleres, Banfield, Inter Milan, 145 caps for Argentina. And I never saw him have a bad game. Never. Now, I, ha- I haven't seen every game of his career, so I'm sure there are bad games. I never saw him have a bad game. Good at everything. Great at a lot of things. Outstanding on the ball as a passer, as a crosser, great dribbler, endless work rate, brilliant 1v1 defender, like so disciplined 1v1, never bit on anything, but could play centre back, could play sweeper, could play wherever you want him to play. And he would always give you a good performance. So, yeah, Javier Zanetti. Walter Samuel, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. Very underrated centre-back. Newell's old boys, Boca Juniors, Roma, Real Madrid, Inter, and then Basel. uh, 56 caps for Argentina, five goals. Often said that he failed at Real Madrid, didn't at all, was actually very good there, just didn't like life in in Madrid. Found it too hectic and chaotic. So he went to the quiet city that is Milan. But he just liked the life in, in Italy more. Liked the culture like the pace of life, couldn't deal with, with Spain at all, but he was phenomenal. 1v1, aerially, six foot, played like he was 6'5", just dominated everybody. Couldn't get round him, couldn't get by him, tough as nails, not afraid to make a cynical foul when it was necessary. Tremendous player, absolutely tremendous player. Kili Gonzalez, I spoke about when I went through Valencia, I just loved Kelly Gonzalez. There was nothing flash about his game. He just knocked it past people and ran quicker than them. And then he hammered it with his left foot as hard as he could. Rosario Central, Boca Juniors, Saragossa, Valencia, Inter, Rosario, San Lorenzo, and Rosario again. 56 caps and nine goals. Just a fun player. Just a typical old-style left winger. Got the ball, knocked it down the line, 
and ran really fast after it. And if he got himself in a shooting position, you could forget about the idea that he might pass to anybody else. Like a left-footed Kinchelskis. Like a left-footed Kinchelskis, but he, he hit the ball so hard. Kelly Gonzalez, pound for pound, might have won the hardest shots of all time. Uh, Claudio Lopez, again, he's one I've talked about at depth, in depth, rather. Uh, Racing Club Valencia, Lazio, Club America, Racing Club Kansas City Wizards and Colorado Rapids. 55 caps, 10 goals. Didn't have didn't have the impact for Argentina that he possibly should have had. Um, I, I loved him at, at, at Valencia and I, I loved him when he first went to Lazio. Even though he didn't have a great first season, I loved his movement around Crespo. And I think that pairing had so much potential. And for one reason or another, largely because Lazio's financial tr- troubles came to the fore and that team ended up getting broken up. That that could have been such a special pairing. Him and Crespo, had they been able to keep the previous season's team and add to it? So Peruzzi in goal, Nesta and Sinisa Mihailovic, uh, Negredo, uh, Negro rather, and, um, and Favela as the fullbacks, Stankovic, Nedved, Veron and Simeone with the likes of Almeida and Conceição and Kuto for depth. And then up front, had they been able to add, say, Crespo and and Lopez? Now, they had Marcelo Salas when they won the league anyway, so, I mean, it's not like they had a bad striker, but that just could have been so special. That could have been an all-timer team. It really could. That midfield is, was incredible. And that front pair, when it clicked in the second year, it was pretty good. Uh, obviously, Crespo having the injuries kind of spoiled it. Uh, moving on, Marcelo Gallardo. He's a really good manager. Uh, he's now the manager of Al Itahad in um, in Saudi. Uh, recently took over. I'm surprised he took that job because I thought for certain he'd come to Europe, but I'd imagine he's been given a significant bag of money. Now, Nuno Espirito Santo was given a significant bag of money and did not do well there and was sacked after, what, a year in charge? Uh, a year and a bit in charge, um, just not living up to the standards that, that they expected, having invested in Fabinho, Karim Benzema, N'Golo Kante, Luis Felipe. They expected more. Nuno didn't deliver. It'll be interesting to see if Gallardo does because he's been a really good manager. River played for a long time, obviously, winning uh, multiple Copa Libertadores and getting to a third final. Uh, also won one league title, but will be fun to see. His career, he played for River Plate, Monaco, River Plate, PSG, DC United, River Plate, and then finished up playing for Nacional in Uruguay. 44 caps, 13 goals. A uh, little bit unfortunate that his career overlapped with Ortega and largely only one of them was going to get in the national team. So they were splitting games, which is why neither have the amount of caps that they should have. But like with uh, Ortega, he would also uh, fall out with people quite often. He was a genius passer of the ball, an absolute genius passer of the ball and a great set piece taker. Wasn't the dribbler that Ortega was, but might have been slightly better passer. And just as good on free kicks. 
and corners. Uh, another genius playmaker, Pablo Imar. River played Valencia, Saragossa, Benfica. Then he played for Jura Barao in Malaysia, then River Plate, and then finished off with a Estudiantes Athletic Club who are in Rio Cuarta. They're not Estudiantes that Veron is the president of. It's a different club. But he's another one that I just I loved watching, especially when he was at Valencia under Benitez. Um, 52 caps, eight goals, great burst of speed, great dribbler. Very, very fun player to watch. Um, inconsistent, without question. Didn't score as many goals as he should have scored. Got in great positions and would either pass it up or his finishing might be lacking. But when when Imar was at his best, Imar was really special. Uh, the player I suppose most closely linked to him in his career because they came through at River together and then played later together at Benfica is Javier Saviola. Another one like Imar who didn't quite live up to his potential. Um, River Plate, Barcelona, loans to Monaco and Sevilla, then Real Madrid, Benfica, Malaga, Olympiacos, Verona and River Plate. 39 caps, 11 goals. He should have been Con Aguero. That's the player he should have become. He was more talented coming out of Argentina and more highly rated coming out of Argentina than Aguero. And Aguero was seen as a future superstar. But Saviola was different. When Barcelona got him, it was seen as this massive coup that Barca had score, had landed the best young player in the world at that time. Just didn't happen for him. Didn't settle at Barca. Didn't... Scored goals. Scored goals, but never quite performed at the level he had for River. Became more of a poacher than anything else. After that, he had a good career, but it, it wasn't what he should have been. And there's, that's the case with a, quite a few of these Argentine players. Uh, next up, uh, Javier Mascherano. I, I think I've talked about him endlessly on every podcast I've ever done. Just one of the best defensive midfielders that's ever lived. Incredible ball winner. Fearless leader would drive his team forward, could pick the ball up and literally drive his team forward. Not a great passer, not a big goal scorer. Only scored, I think, three or four goals in his entire career. What did he get? Let's see. Five goals in his club career in uh, 659 games. But he wasn't in the team to score goals. He was in the team to win the ball back and give it to the lads that could play. And that's what he did. And he did it better than anybody else. 147 caps for Argentina. Uh, three goals, to be fair. So prolific in comparison to his club career. But yeah, just just an all-timer. River Plate, Corinthians, West Ham, Liverpool, Barcelona, uh, Hepai China Fortune, and Estudiantes back as a favour to uh, Veron. Um, obviously played centre-back for Barcelona and won a Champions League doing that and was great at it, despite being five foot eight very much took one of the pages from the Ayala book of centre-back play and got on with it. Uh, Esteban Cambiasso, I mean, just a really good defensive midfielder. Argentinos Juniors, Real Madrid, Independiente, River Plate, because it looked like after the first spell with Real that his career wasn't going to pan out in Europe. He was just too young when he moved over. It was as simple as that. 
and he comes back to Real, goes to Inter, and he's a legend at Inter. Ten years there, spent a year at Leicester and two years at Olympiacos. 52 caps, five goals, just a very, very good defensive midfielder. Does nothing flash, does nothing fancy, just a very good player. Uh, next up then is Fernando Gago. Uh, Gago, like Cambiasso, suffered from being tagged the next Redondo early in his career and always had to live up to that level and never was going to because Redondo's a one of one. But um, Boca Juniors, Real Madrid, Roma, Valencia, Velasarsfield, Boca Juniors, and Velasarsfield again, 61 caps. Just a really good playmaking holding midfielder. Great vision, outstanding range of passing. Moved to Europe maybe a little bit too soon or moved to a, moved to Real Madrid a little bit too soon. If he'd had an in-between move, I think he would have gone on to be a great at Real. I genuinely do. I just think the jump was too much for him at the time. But he was outstanding when he was fit and in form. And it's just a shame he never had the career he should have had. Like you look at it, he played, played 61 games for Argentina. In his club career, he only played 388 games in a career that started in 04 and ended in 2021. Yet he played less than 400 club games. But the national team would always pick him because he was that good and they knew what he was capable of. Uh, another one who shouldn't should have been more than he was, I spoke about him recently, Ever Benega. Uh, Boca Juniors, Valencia, Atleti, Newell's Old Boys, Sevilla, Inter, Sevilla, and Al-Shabaab, now where he is at the moment. 65 caps, six goals for the national team. But again, never quite hit the heights he was capable of. There was spells at Valencia. There was a year at Sevilla where he was just phenomenal. But for whatever reason, he just could never get out of his own way. Could do absolutely anything with a football. He came through as a number 10 and moved backwards into that more deep-lying role. And that's where he sort of enjoyed playing. But I always thought if he could have played as a number 10, I think that's where he would have been at his best. Uh, Another number 10 who was incredible but didn't live up to their full potential is Juan Roman Raquelme. Boca to Barca. Didn't work out, fell out with Van Hal. Was it Van Hal? I think it was Van Hal he fell out with. Uh, yeah, it was Van Hal, uh, who said he was a political signing that he wouldn't have signed himself. Went to Villarreal. He is maybe the greatest player in Villarreal history. Managed to fall out with them as well. Went back to Boca Juniors, and he's a legend at Boca. Played for Argentinos Juniors to finish his career. 51 caps, he should have won double that. I mean, he is one of the greatest number 10s the game has seen. But the fa- the problem was he wanted to play the game at his pace. He wanted to play the game his way, not the way managers wanted. And it didn't fit with everybody. But you could just sit and watch him play all day with a smile on your face because he was that much fun. Uh, we're quickly running to the end here. Carlos Tevez. Don't really need to go into detail. I just love watching Carlos Tevez play. Had all the talent, but also had that incredible desire and that work rate. And these similar to Suarez in a lot of ways, that scruffy kind of dribbler, that kind of head down, bit between the teeth, nature. Boca Juniors, Corinthians, West Ham, Manchester United, Manchester City, Juve, Boca Juniors, Shanghai Shenyu, 
and Boca Juniors, again, only retired in 2021. Um, there is a myth that United sold him to City and that United got 40 million. Can people stop saying that? United never owned him. United didn't get a penny. West Ham owned half of him. Kia, his agent, owned the other half. And they're the ones who profited when he was sold to Manchester City, where obviously he was very good and he was very good under Conte at Juve. I just I love watching him play. Uh, 76 caps, only 13 goals to the national team. A disappointing international career for Carlos Tevez because he was capable of a lot more. When you look at what he did in his club career, you know, 16, 15, 31, 15, 19, 19 and 15 in his two seasons at United. Uh, at City, 29, 24, sorry, 29, 23, then four. That's the year he went on strike and decided to go play golf instead of play for City. Uh, then 17. Then he went to Juve, 21, 29. He was just a great player. Great, great player. Uh, Gabriel Melito, his brother Diego's probably better known, but Gabriel was the one I always liked as a centre-back. It's a cultured left-footed centre-back. It's really, really good. Independiente, Saragossa, Barca. Independiente, his career was ruined by a horrendous knee injury. Um, otherwise, he would have been, I think he would have been seen as one of the great centre-backs of the last 20 years. 42 caps and one goal. Uh, Maxi Rodriguez, Newell's Old Boys, Espanyol, Atleti, Liverpool, Newell's Old Boys, Penarol and Newell's Old Boys. 57 goals, sorry, 57 caps, 16 goals, scored on the best World Cup goals of all time. Just a great player. Like, not a not a great player in terms of, you know, when we talk about, like, Raquel May or, but a great team player. Unselfish, played off the ball, made those runs back post over and over and over again. One of the smartest players I've ever seen and uh, absolutely somebody you'd want in your squad every single time. On to the last two. Lucho Gonzalez is up first. Uh, Hurricane, River Plate, Porto, where he's best remembered. Marseille, Porto again. Alrayan, River Plate, and Atletico Paranins. He only retired there two years ago as well. Won 45 caps, six goals. Just a lovely, languid midfielder. Like, had that sort of real relaxed style. Very similar to Varane in the way he moved and the way he played. Great range of passing could score a goal, ran a game, had leadership skills, was always talking, always felt like if he had left Porto two years earlier and gone to one of the top leagues, I think he would have been far more highly regarded as it was. He waited till he was 28 before going to Marseille because he was very happy with Porto. He was late coming to Europe. He didn't come to Europe until he was 24, uh, which you know now we see kids, kids coming over at 18, 19. He came over 24, so four years of Porto. Went to Marseille, and he was quite good for Marseille, not as good as he was at Porto. Um, and he, I think he regretted the move quite quickly and pushed to go back. And eventually he got his way and went back. And he was really good for Porto again. So uh, he is my second to last one. These are not in any order, except that this last one is my favourite Argentine player of all time. And that is Fernando Redondo. Uh, I think he's the best defensive midfielder that's ever lived. Just such a class act. Brilliant defensively, like brilliant defensively. Great chat, great tackler, great ball winner, super smart, read the game, positionally flawless, incredible spatial awareness, incredible, incredible tactical discipline. But 
on the ball, he was incredible as well. As a passer, could play any pass you want, could pick any pass out and land it on a sixpence, could dribble past multiple people. There's that famous clip of him embarrassing Manchester United at Old Trafford. That was something he did on a regular basis. Argentinos Juniors, Tenerife, Real Madrid and Milan. His partnership with Michael Laudrup in his first season at Real is still one of my favourite midfield partnerships I've ever seen. Um, A vital part of two league titles, won two Champions Leagues with Real as well. And frankly, the reason they sold him was because they knew his knee was gone and he went to Milan and he didn't play for two years. And the character of the man is that he refused to take his wages for two years. Then he came back, played 19 games, then 14 games, but it was never quite the same because of the knee injuries. But that last season with Real, he played 53 games and he played it on a bum knee and he was unbelievably good. Unbelievably good. He was 31 at the time as well. But it was a shame. Real should never have sold him. Real shouldn't have sold him. It was wrong to sell him to Milan because they knew he had a knee problem. It was wrong to sell him because he didn't want to go. And then in his first training session, his knee just went. Literally his first training session, the knee just exploded on him. I didn't play for two and a half years. Like they gave him a house and a car when he went there as part of his deal. He tried to give them back. Milan stood firm and insisted that he live in the house and have the car, but he didn't want to take anything because he didn't feel like he was earning it. But you watch him play and there's never a missed pass. There's never a rough touch. Everything is done smoothly. I, he was just incredible. There's no flaw in his game. You needed to get him to be physical and tough. He could do that. You needed him to be a, a silky player. He could do that. You know, to ping a ball, no problem. You need him to go and win the ball back, absolutely no problem. I think he's the best defensive midfielder of all time. He's certainly top three. There's no argument to have him outside the top three. It's him, it's Busquets, and it's Rijkaard. And that's it. That's that's the list. They're the top three of all time. Roy Keane would be four for me, but that's by the by. We'll get to that when we do our defensive midfield list. Just a phenomenal player. Only won 29 caps for Argentina. The biggest reason for that was when Daniel Passarella was manager, um, he demanded that players cut their hair and that they not wear earrings. So Redondo refused to cut his hair and got his ear pierced. Um, took the earring out quite quickly, but just wanted to make a point. Um, Passarella, I mean, he he's one of the great defenders of all time. He might be a, a, a Hall of Fame dreadful human, a Hall of Shame dreadful human. He publicly banned homosexuals from his squad. So... Like, players weren't really out then at all. Nobody was out then, so how he knew anyone might be. But if you look back at some of the players that were left out of the squad, he was openly suggesting that some of them were, even if they were married and had kids and whatever else. Um, Passarella, not not so much a good fella, more a dreadful gang of lads. But Redondo refused to get his hair cut and refused to play, <laughs> basically. So... He was left out of the national team. Even when Maradona went to the manager and said, look, he's got to play, he said no. He tried to call him up then for the 98 World Cup, but told him he'd have to cut his hair. And Redondo said no. 
Bielsa recalled him. He was immediately the best player. And then he got injured and then that was it. Shame, but incredible. Right, on to our gossip. We'll skip the news for today, though there is one piece of news here where Lionel Scaloni, Argentina's World Cup winning manager, has said he is considering resigning. And he made that surprise announcement after Argentina's 1-0 win over Brazil in Rio de Janeiro on Tuesday night. That might have just been the emotion of the incident and what took place because there was so much crowd trouble there. Um, On to the gossip. Portugal midfielder Ruben Neves is not expected to leave Al-Hilal in the January window despite links to Newcastle. That's good news. Bernardo Silva has hinted he could try to persuade 19-year-old compatriot Joe Neves to join Manchester City despite Manchester United's interest in the Benfica midfielder. He'd fit like a glove into City's team, to be fair. Uh, Silva says he would like to return to play for Benfica before he finishes his career. That makes sense. Eric Ten Hag will not let Rafael Varane leave the club until the summer transfer window, in which case he's definitely away to Saudi Arabia. Juventus are hopeful that Dusan Vlahovic will agree to sign a new contract despite interest from Arsenal and Manchester United. Is there actual real interest from either? I don't think there is. Chelsea are hoping they will be able to sell Romelu Lukaku next summer as Roma are keen to make the 30-year-old's loan move permanent. I assume then Roma will sell Tammy Abraham. So if I'm Aston Villa, I'm probably kicking the tyres on Tammy because I don't think they'll get Ivan Tony, even though I really want to see Ivan Tony and Ollie Watkins play together. But uh, but Tammy was at Villa before and really enjoyed himself there. And I think Tammy would fit really well into that team as well. Um, Antoine Griezmann will not be joining Manchester United and his only focus is Atletico Madrid. Fulham will let Joe Polina leave to join Bayern Munich in January for less than the 52 to 56 million the club originally wanted. That is from Florian Plettenberg, who is a spoofer. So maybe true, maybe not true. Um, sometimes maybe good, sometimes maybe shit, as uh, Reno Gattuso once said. Spanish goalkeeper David De Gea has made it clear he does not want to join a Saudi Pro League team, but would consider moving to MLS. Bayern Munich are pushing to sign Takahiro Tomiyasu next summer, but Arsenal do want do not want to let him go. That's interesting. I think once Timber's back, he might be able to leave. Uh, the delay of Sir Jim Ratcliffe's proposed minority takeover at Manchester United has increased fears at Old Trafford that the club's tran- January transfer plans could be ruined. I can't imagine they'll have much money to spend either way. Some Manchester United players believe the team's poor start was caused by Ten Hag overworking the squad in pre-season. Well, that's a little bit controversial. Thiago Alcantara is among the options Barcelona could consider as they look to replace 19-year-old Spain international Gavi. That would actually make a lot of sense, though they do have some good options in midfield as things stand. Giovanni Lo Celso has also emerged as an option for Barcelona. Again, that one could make sense. Arsenal could allow Fabio Vieira to join Marseille on loan. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't really worked for him at Arsenal. It was a pointless signing. They already had Odegaard. It was a lot of money to commit on a player they didn't need. They had a young Patino they could have developed behind Odegaard. Instead, he's been out on multiple loans. So it's just poor squad management, really, and a poor use of funds. I'd imagine they'd lose significant money if they sold him tomorrow. Um, Juventus and Brazil centre-back Gleison Bremer 
says he is keen to play in the Premier League. It would take an idiot to sign him, to be honest. He's just far too wild. I just couldn't be dealing with him. Um, Liverpool are leading the push for the Premier League to resolve Manchester City's financial fair play, play case. I think everybody should be pushing for that, to be fair. The FA says it is preparing to review evidence of potential serious breaches of agent rules in a transfer involving Tottenham, Portsmouth and Jermaine Defoe. Now, Jermaine Defoe played for Tottenham twice. Uh, I tell a lie. Jermaine Defoe played for Tottenham three times. Once was on loan. But he left Tottenham in 2008. He went on loan to Portsmouth and then he was signed by Portsmouth. And he spent one year at Portsmouth and then he went back to Spurs in what may or may not have been a little bit of money laundering. Um, Those Spurs, I think, did pay twice what they sold him for. But this apparently is the deal where he goes from Spurs to Portsmouth. And apparently the agent that was used was an illegal agent, basically. Was, was somebody that wasn't approved by the FA to be handling transfers. Now, my guess is that the person who suggested that agent was the Portsmouth manager of the of the time. And if we have a quick look at the list of Portsmouth FC managers, well, who was the manager around then? Oh, it was it was Harry Redknapp. Now he's been involved in one or two shady deals in the past. He was investigated multiple times. He's been charged multiple times with shady payments, not paying paying his taxes. He has gotten off on a couple of technicalities, but I would say Harry might well have had a, a shady agent or two that he used in some of those deals. And remember, he bought Defoe, then went to Spurs himself, and then bought Defoe back for twice what he paid. Um, he loved buying players multiple times. Peter Crouch, multiple times. Uh, what was the... What was the midfielder? Cranshaw? Nico Cranshaw? Didn't he buy him like twice or three times as well? And even though like Nico Cranshaw was really talented, he never really lived up to the potential. Uh, bought him for Portsmouth, bought him for, for Spurs, and then signed him when he was QPR manager as well. Yeah, fair go. Likely some dodgy agents involved in those deals too. Uh, that'll do me for today, folks. Thanks as always for listening. Sorry we were a bit late, but you know, things happen. I will see you all tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.